Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that despite all that can go wrong, you never go wrong. That you are good, that you are holy, that you are worthy of our praise always. Lord, we ask that your word would be proclaimed brightly this morning, that your spirit would teach it to our hearts, would instill what you would have us learn, and that your name would be praised. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the Lamb of God, the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. We thank you that his life, his death, and his resurrection, the freedom that is that is bought through them, have been freely gifted to us. We pray this in his name. You can turn to John. You're going to be. Turn to John this morning. John chapter 1 again. We will finish up chapter 1 today. Not that it's a bad thing to take time in John chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 35. John 1, 35. It says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two dis- er, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. But Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, in the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can Anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, Daniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do 
promise of greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angel of God ascending and descending upon the Son. Again, Spirit of God, we ask that your presence and your teaching manifest and known fully. So, before we jump into what I'll right up front say is, is kind of a confusing passage, or, or maybe not confusing, but just some odd things with it. We have to, we have to make sure that we're in the right context get our bearings. John is unique, John the Gospel is unique in that it kind of has a strange introduction. I talk a lot about, about the type of literature that we're reading as we, as we study the Bible, and I do this because, because part of my job as, as your pastor is to not just tell you what the Bible says, but to, to help you read it and understand it better personally. So, so that's why I talk about this probably more often than I should. But as we look at the start of, of really any, any piece of writing, any gospel or any letter or anything. There's, there's, there's almost always an introduction and then a body and then a conclusion. That's, that's the proper way to write something. An introduction, a body, and a conclusion. And, and usually in the introductions of said letters or said books, uh, you get more overarching themes, bigger, bigger themes, themes that aren't just necessarily part of the story development or 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 something along those lines that are kind of bigger and introductory in nature. And, and we get that very, very clearly with John 1, 1 to 18, which is what we talked about for three weeks uh, through Advent. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is introductory in nature. It's, it's big picture kind of stuff. But then when you get into the body of a writing, in, in particular the body of a writing that is... Uh, Dominantly story, like gospels, the things that you're going to see, the things you're going to encounter, become smaller, they become more more micro. Whereas in the introduction, you're going to be thinking about big picture things. Whereas in the middle of a story, you're going to be thinking about that particular event. And what John does is he kind of has this introduction that kind of blends itself into into the beginning of the body. We could really make the case that the the body of John's letter starts in chapter 2 because this is where we get into the more specific micro information. So, the other thing that John does in his introductory thing is that he, he blends thoughts together. And so, two weeks ago when we finished at we looked at verses 19 to 34. And the reason why we looked at verses 19 to 34 is because in both, or in kind of in both movements of that story, we have John proclaiming something. John the Baptist proclaiming something. In the first uh, part, verses 19 to, to 28, John tells us that Jesus uh, will baptize 
different. Jesus will baptize different. Whereas in the second section we have uh, in verse 29 to 34, John is going to proclaim that this is the Lamb of God. So both of these are John proclaiming this. But then we can look at verse 29 and verse 35 and verse 43, and we can see that there is a literary device being used to kind of tie these things together. So before we jump into today's passage, we've got to jump back two weeks ago. So John proclaims something. He proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Not only is Jesus the Lamb of God, but he is one who comes after John. Comes after John, but is before John. And because he is before John, meaning that he is eternal, he is more important than John, obviously. But in addition, it's this particular person who is not going to baptize with water like John, but is going to baptize with the Spirit that is altogether different. That our belief in him is fundamentally different than our belief the reason why this is important is because it kind of sets the stage for today's passage, or today's passages. Probably how we should think. I think verses 35 uh, to 42, and then verses 43 to 51 are two different stories, but they're meant to be taken together with last week's passage again, the next day, the next day. John is proclaiming something. Then verse 35. Hopefully in just a second. Verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. Before we go further, we've got to talk about what this As we read the Gospels, if you grew up in church, or if you've read the Bible, you've read the Gospels, you've heard that term disciple, and, and maybe you know what it is, maybe you don't know what it is, it's okay. A disciple is not something that is unique to Jesus. Discipleship, discipleship, or meaning the, the process of having disciples, is something that was common in the first century. Common in the first century. And it was common for a pretty significant amount, amount of time before and after. People like Plato and Aristotle had disciples, they were just people who would, would learn from that particular person as a teacher. So Plato and Aristotle, they were considered teachers of philosophy. And there are people who followed them, who lived with them, who ate with them, who, who did everything with them, who learned from them, and then kind of continued on in their in their teaching vein. Either teaching the same things that those people were teaching or teaching like them. The, the Jewish culture was no different. The rabbis had disciples. It was the way, really was the way of passing on important about what the Bible, what the Old Testament was saying, is saying. So the rabbis, they would take disciples and they would teach those disciples who would then grow into rabbis and, and teach more disciples and so on and so forth. And so John, being in a lot of ways a teacher himself, a rabbi himself, he has disciples. It says the next day again, John, he was standing with two of his disciples, two of his disciples. Like Jesus will soon have disciples. John his disciples. This says verse 36. 
And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. There it is, that repetition of what we saw two weeks ago. The Lamb of God. Now, like I said a couple weeks ago, it's really, it's really strange that John says this about Jesus. Maybe it's not strange, but it's abnormal for the time. Because John believes that Jesus is the Messiah, it would be more likely for John to have believed that Jesus was going to be a conquering king. Because this was the predominant viewpoint of the people of Israel as they looked for and anticipated this coming Christ, this coming Messiah. In the Old Testament, we read about this coming Messiah, this coming Christ, and we see him in in two different types of scenarios. We see him rescuing the people from an oppressive nation. We as New Testament believers, as as post-Christ timeline people, we know that this is in reference to the second coming. This is when Jesus is going to come back in his glory, Revelation 19, he's going to judge the world, he's going to free his people from the bondage of sinful man. But there are other passages, and and I would argue probably more passages that talk about the Messiah coming to rescue us from our sins, to rescue us from our sins. And there are a number of passages in the Old Testament that tell us that how that is accomplished is through the sacrifice of the Messiah. And this is what John knows. He gets it. Whereas the rest of culture is fixated upon being freed from the Roman government. This is why when Jesus enters Jerusalem later on in his life, the crowds around shout Hosanna because they believe here comes conquering King Jesus. He's going to rescue us from Rome. John gets it and he proclaims it. This is the Messiah, the one who will be sacrificed for us. Now as we'll see and as we progress through John, we'll find that the people don't really understand what John was saying. They don't, they don't get it, at least not entirely, and at least not very many of them. The reaction from this, now the third day in a row that John has been saying something about this man Jesus. John has been saying a, a couple days before, I, I am not the Christ, but the one who comes after me is the Christ. And then verse 29, the next day, John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then verse 35, the next day. So three days in a row, Behold the Lamb of God, the one who comes after me is more important than me. So John has been talking about Jesus for a little bit of time. And his disciples have finally taken note and they've decided to do something about it. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, Nothing about this passage tells us that they planned on being Jesus' disciples. It's not how it worked. In order to be somebody's disciple, you had to be called by that someone. So Jesus, being a teacher, would have to call you and say, you come and be my disciple. You don't just get to walk up to somebody and say, oh, I'm going to follow you around now. Now, there were definitely people who did that with Jesus, but they weren't really his legal disciples, if you want to get serious should have. So they're just simply, almost out of curiosity, it seems, following this guy that John thinks very highly of, their teacher thinks very highly of. Verse 38, and Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? Which seems like a good question. What are you seeking? 
Why are you following? They answer, Rabbi. Rabbi. Now, like I said, in order to be a rabbi, you have to kind of go through this process. You have to learn through the schooling system of the first century, of the first century Jewish prisoners, which from like ages 5 to 15, you're going to learn the whole of the Old Testament. You're really good at it. You continue to work more and more. In five seven, you're looking at the first five books of the Bible. Maybe eight to eleven ish, you're going to be learning about the prophets, and then the, you know twelve to fifteen, you're going to be learning about the about the rest, the writings. And if you're really good, you kind of continue to go. But if you're not really, if you don't really have a, a good memory for memorization, you can't you can't follow along very well. Then you just learn your father's trade along with going to school, and eventually you just Stop homeschooling. But if you're really good at the end of this, you make it through this whole process, maybe a rabbi will call you as a disciple. And if you're called a disciple and you're good at that, then you can, at the age of 30, become a rabbi yourself. There's a process, an accepted process at the time. We don't know if Jesus went through this process or not. We don't really know whether he did this or not. Nothing in the Bible tells us that he did, and nothing in the Bible tells us that he didn't. We can make a logical guess that because Jesus is, is God, he probably was pretty good at knowing the Bible. And obviously, he has a very good working knowledge of Scripture, and so maybe he went through the process, and maybe he didn't. It actually doesn't really matter, because what's happening here is that these, these men who were following John as their, as their rabbi, have, have turned to Jesus and have seen him become something or have seen and recognized that he is this teacher and they call him rabbi. It's a term of respect in this moment. But it's also a term that in, in some sense signifies that they're willing to recognize him as their, as their rabbi. What do you seek? Rabbi. Where are you staying? I got nothing. I don't understand why they turn to follow Jesus, the Lamb of God, who they believe to be the Messiah. And he says, what do you say? They say, well, we're, we want to know where you're staying. It's really odd. It's really odd. I think probably what's happening here is that is that they're kind of, again, signifying that they're willing to be with him, to stay with him, and to follow him, that they haven't been called by him, not yet at least. And so it's just this kind of weird exchange, and Jesus' response almost seems just as strange, but I think, again, it fits. It says, and he said to them, come and you will see. Come and you will see. This isn't Jesus calling them to be his disciples, at least not, at least not obviously. We'll see that in just a minute, but so they came and they followed Jesus and they stayed with him. So they said, I'm going to show you where I'm going to, I'm staying. And they said, okay. And so they went and they stayed with Jesus. And it was like 10, the 10th hour, which is 4 in the afternoon. Plenty of time for them to go back to John. It's unusual. It's unusual. And then there's kind of a second story within this first story where, where, where one of the two, he says, verse 40, one of the one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. And we find that Andrew is one of the apostles. He's one of the twelve that Jesus calls. So we know that to be know that to be the case. And he he calls uh, he, he he heard John talking and he followed Jesus and he is 
Simon Peter's brother. Now, we haven't even been introduced to Simon Peter yet, but we're being told about Simon Peter because, like I've been saying, we're not supposed to read John just once. So here's Simon Peter. Here's Andrew. Here's Simon Peter. And it says, verse 41, he went and found Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. Which so so Andrew and this other, this other disciple of John's, they hear John, the Baptist, say again and again and again, Behold the Lamb of God, this is the Messiah, this guy's it. And they go, let's go follow him. And Andrew, one of those two guys, he goes, I got, I got an idea, let me go get my brother, because he'll want to follow this guy. So he goes and he finds, finds Simon. He brings him to Jesus. He says, we have found the Messiah. And you'll notice, we have found the Messiah. It's enough for, for Peter, enough for Simon to go with Jesus, or to go with verse 42, he says, he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and he said, Simon, the son of John, you you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas. Cephas is the is the Aramaic or Hebrew uh, term or name that is the same as Peter, which means rock. Peter is, is Greek. John proclaims, behold the Lamb of God, Andrew and the Son of God follow Jesus. Andrew goes to Peter and says, Behold, or hey, we found the Messiah. Peter goes and follows Jesus. Then the next day, verse 43, and, and I think that what we see in those this first story kind of helps set up the second story. We're going to see some repetition of some things that have taken place. But verse 43, three, and says, In the next day, Jesus decides to go to Galilee. He's out in the wilderness with John and he decides to go to Galilee, which is a region where he's from. It says that he found Philip. We don't know who Philip is yet, but the Bible knows who Philip is. We found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is the practical, more logical way to call this. We don't know. We can be specific. Hey, come and and we know that Andrew and Peter are called like this because of the other Gospels. The other Gospels tell us that Peter and Andrew, they're out in the boat fishing, and Jesus comes and says, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. This is Jesus calling them to be disciples. So we have this kind of unusual story of this unusual thing is happening, and now we have a new thing. Peter, or Jesus calls Philip. Philip is from Bethsaida, the same city that Andrew and Peter are from. So perhaps what has taken place is Jesus goes to Galilee, goes to Bethsaida. Andrew and Peter go. They go out fishing. Jesus comes, calls them to be disciples. Andrew and Philip, they, they, or Andrew and Peter start telling people about Jesus. Philip hears about it. Jesus goes to Philip. You come follow me. So Jesus, so Philip, Philip decides to. He says, Philip found Nathaniel and said to him. So Philip is called. Philip is called, and he immediately, like Andrew before him, he immediately goes to Nathaniel. Goes to Nathaniel. He says to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, and also the prophets have done. We indicates that Andrew. Moses wrote about this prophet in the Old Testament who, the, who 
who the, the religious leaders asked John about a couple of weeks ago. Are you the prophet? This is from Deuteronomy 18.18. This is probably the reference here as well. This is the Messiah. And also who the prophets were. This is the Messiah. We have bound, like, uh, like Andrew before, we have bound the Messiah. Unlike Peter, though, Nathaniel has a question. We have found one wrote about by, by Moses the law and also the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what, what Nathaniel is doing here is he's he's calling on obvious his his knowledge of Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, and he goes, there's no prophecy about the Messiah coming from Nazareth. No prophecy coming from Nazareth. And Nazareth is a nothing town, maybe maybe Judea, maybe Jerusalem, but not Nazareth. It's at this point that I think many of us find ourselves in a similar situation when we tell people about Jesus. And we tell them something, and then they have this immediate, immediate response, question whether or not what we believe is right, and, and, and there's this kind of inherent need to kind of prove it. Philip doesn't do that. Philip simply says, come and see. Come and see. Verse 47, Jesus said, saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, there's that term of endearment again, there's that term of respect, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because because I saw you, I because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these? And so ends what I think is a very odd progression of events. And I think there's two things that we take from this. The first is that this shows us a little bit of the realism realism of the events that take place. There are definitely times in the Bible, in the stories of the Bible, where we see strange situations, unusual things are take place, and that's really all they are. It's just kind of an unusual progression don't have hidden meanings. They're not, they're not, you know, keys to unlock some grand new teaching. It's, it's not that. It's just this is how it happened. It's, it makes it, it makes it more real to us because we can kind of understand how all this takes place. But the other thing that we we really have to see, and the point, I think, the point of this story is how all of these different people come in contact. last hundred or so years the church has gone through, and, and it always does, it's not unique to the last hundred years of church history church has gone through some significant kind of cultural and, and, uh, and message movements so after World War II and, and after the atrocities of the Holocaust 
and, and all the all the just very in-your-face obvious wickedness that was happening in the world. The church's response was to talk about God as the God of justice. And this is where you get most of the time when you think about when you think about you know fire and brimstone preachers. This is what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the 50s and the 60s when the church was like, we have to tell the world that that God will bring us to justice. Because sin and wickedness sure seemed to have won for an, for a long time with, with the Nazi regime, with the Holocaust, and that stuff. So that was our that was our response. But the problem with that is that we we lost the focus on the whole story of Jesus, and the church suffered. The church suffered because our focus was just on the wrath of God, and not on the mercy, of God, not on the goodness of God. We just focused on that one part, and that one part was right. And it, good, and we shouldn't forget about it, but we have to tell the whole story. And then what we did in response was not to tell the whole story, but to go, okay, well, the church is, the church is shrinking, so we got to do something about it. And so our thought was we, we need to make, we need to get rid of all the things that scare people away from the church and just focus on the things that matter. And so we got rid of some of the traditions. This is as a whole, not as us as a church. We got rid of some of the traditions. We changed the way we thought about how you dress in church. We changed the way our worship sounded in church. We changed the way our sermons were preached. And we called it seeker friendly. And at its origin, at its core, it was okay because it, it sought to get rid of all the other stuff that kind of gets attached to church. And it sought to just tell the truth about Jesus. But, but the problem was, is that we didn't stop with just getting rid of the other stuff. We started to get rid of the things of Jesus that we didn't like, namely the fire and the brimstone. Because people were like, well, I don't want to serve a God who's just mad all the time. And so we said, well, he's not mad all the time. But he is a God of justice. And so we, we left that out and the church suffered. The church suffered. As we look at the Bible, as we look at the Gospels, and in particular as we look at the story of Jesus calling his disciples, not just in John, but in all four Gospels, when the Gospels tell us about Jesus calling his disciples, there is something, there is something very, very important that we must see. We must see the, the absolute, unbelievable simplicity and truth of the proclamation of who this God is. When in the other Gospels, when Peter and Andrew are called on the boat, they're out fishing. They have, they have jobs, they have a career, they have money. And, and, and Jesus comes and he says, leave everything that you have and follow me. You know what they do? They leave everything that they have and they follow Jesus. It's shocking, right? And some people argue that the reason why they leave they leave all they have and follow Jesus is because Jesus is a rabbi and they're going to be his disciples. And if a rabbi calls you, you follow him. The problem with that logic is that Peter and Andrew weren't weren't good enough through the process. They're uneducated, is what we're told. So why is it that Peter and Andrew and, and Philip and Nathaniel and, and the other disciple and, and all these people came and followed Jesus? Not because not because it was going to be fun. Probably 
do the opposite. It's not because it was a, a good situation for them. That's good. Again, the opposite is true. Because the most attractive thing in all the universe has always been and will always be the simple and true Jesus Christ. John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Andrew says, We have found the Messiah. Philip says, we see the guy, we have found the guy written about in the Old Testament. And all of them, all of them, convince great people to see. This is our responsibility as evangelists. By the way, all of us who confess Christ as Lord and Savior are evangelists. It's the call that's given to us in that Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to obey all things that we have It's our job as, as followers, as believers, we're to go and to evangelize this world. But it's not complicated. We as the church, we've made it complicated, but it's not. It's tell people that, that Christ is the sacrifice. Pay the debt for your sin. The gift is freely given to each and every one of us who believe in his name. It's proclaiming that he is the one who God sent. It's proclaiming that he is the one who God has been talking about. It's, it's proclaiming the simple truth of who Jesus is. That's it. And, and absolutely there are going to be people who will not listen to it's not our responsibility. There are going to be people who listen who go, I'd like to know about this. I'd like to know about this. And there are going to be some people who go, it's hard to believe. Can anything good really come from that? And our response to all of them and to all the others is, Whether you are skeptics, whether you're here just because, come and see what you Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your name, grateful for who you are, grateful that you are the Savior of this world. We ask now, Lord, that your truth, your simple truth of who you are, would be enough. And that we would hear the words that you spoke to Nathan. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that all that we don't know, all that we question, all that we might not be confident in, will be shown to us through your word, through your power. That you would answer all of our doubts and our fears, and that you would instill in us a belief in your name, 
strongest winds this morning. Praise you for the Lamb of God who has come to us. Yourself.